0: Welcome! My name is Eric Bodak and I am the host of Product Love. Twice a month I'll be joined by product people who will share their love for the product craft. Today I'm excited to be joined by Dan Olson, author of the Wing Product Playbook. And Dan, I think you will find someone who's really passionate about building great products. Dan, thanks for joining me today. I'm here with Dan Olson, author, consultant, coach, advisor, pretty much everything you would need for a product team. Dan, can we start this off by talking to us about your background for anyone who doesn't know it?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, Eric, to speak uh, on your podcast and talk with Pendo. Definitely, yeah. So I guess my story starts way back when I was 10. My parents got me a computer. So I started coding then and kind of saw the power of what computers could do. I was an electrical engineering major where I learned even more about that. And then uh, my job in the Navy, actually, was, the Navy paid for my school. So I actually uh, worked in the Navy on submarine design, which uh, I didn't realize at the time, but in hindsight, was just very, very technical product management because it was such complex work as far as the products we were working on. It required a high degree of cross functional collaboration and getting really clear on requirements and, you know, is this design going to meet the requirements or not? So that was a great job out of school. They also paid for a master's in industrial engineering that I earned at Virginia Tech. And that's where I learned about um, lean manufacturing, which came into play later uh, when Lean Startup came out. But after my time was up in the Navy, I knew I wanted to uh, go to business school, and I was uh, lucky enough to get into Stanford Business School, so I moved out to Silicon Valley. And while I was at business school, that's when I first learned about product management as a career. And once I learned about it, I knew that was exactly what I wanted to do. And because I had never done it, I asked people, hey, where's the best place to learn product management? And at the time, everyone said Intuit is the best place to learn. And so I was fortunate to get a job there. And it definitely delivered on what people said. It was like a post MBA in product management and UX design and marketing and software development. So I worked there for a while and became a product leader there. And then after working there, I wanted to um, basically apply what I learned at startups. So I was a product leader at a couple of startups. Like a lot of people out here in Silicon Valley, I had the itch to do my own startup one day, and I did that. CEO and co founder of a startup that was in the personalized news space, like a discovery engine that we launched at TechCrunch and, and won the People's Choice Award there. And after that startup, and for a couple of years before I did it, before I had the idea and the inspiration struck me, I uh, basically am a product management consultant, and I've been doing that for nine years, and I basically help companies. Um, And it's a mix of both early stage where maybe they don't have a head of product and I will be their interim VP of product. So I did that for Box back in 2007, which was a great experience. I've done it for other post-series A and B startups. And then I also work with later stage larger companies, uh, more advising, coaching, helping them with their product process, building team skills, helping them recruit, training and, and doing workshops. So that's basically, in a nutshell, a quick summary of my product management career.
0: That's awesome. Well, let's dig into a couple areas there, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, Intuit, right? A mecca for learning about product management. What made it so successful? In, I, I mean, our head of product at Pendo has, has experienced it, Intuit. It's a, it's a place that's known for creating, growing the careers of product managers. What did they do that, that was awesome? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. Um, a
1: couple of talks recently have been focused a lot on culture and its impact on companies. And I think that's part of it is basically... The culture was very customer centric. I think that's just a start. Uh, everyone's very focused on the customers, not about the technology. Obviously, we care about what the technology can do, but we're always in search of customer needs or pain points or benefits that we can address. And that, frankly, I think comes from the founder, Scott Cook. So Scott Cook had worked at Bain Consulting before, but he had also worked at Procter & Gamble. And if you're familiar with Procter & Gamble, they're basically you know, trying to outsell their competitors on things like detergent and toothpaste. And so they really think really, really hard about what makes our detergent better than the other detergent and what makes our, you know, toilet paper better than the other toilet paper. So they really think about benefits and they really think about kind of differentiation and value proposition. And so I think that, and also they're really good at market research, right? As, as a skill to achieve those goals. So I think that their product development is driven by that kind of thinking. And Scott Cook definitely brought that into it when he started. So you know, these days there are more software companies that are customer centric, but certainly when it started, it was by far the most customer centric because that just wasn't how other software companies thought at the time. And I also think from the early days, they realized the importance of good user experience design, even though that probably wasn't even a phrase back then. You know, when Quicken, which is their first product, came out, there were already over 45 other personal finance software packages on the market. But the founders, after analyzing them all, realized, gosh, these, none of these are easy enough to use for like a normal human being. And so they had a hypothesis that, hey, if we can deliver a personal finance product that has, you know, is significantly easier to use, we think there's an opportunity to, to become the leader in the market and succeed. And so they, they basically had a hypothesis at the time that, hey, you know, checkbooks are very popular. What if we made the user interface look and act like a checkbook where you just fill in the date, you fill in the payee, you fill in the amount, Right then there won't be a learning curve for people to learn how to use the software. So that was our hypothesis. They executed it. And uh, you know, within a few months they became the number one product personal finance software package out there. And so they joke about having 46th mover advantage. You know, they always talk about first mover advantage and strategy. So they've always been customer centric. They've bought those kind of leading marketing market research principles and the emphasis on UX design to the company. And, And it's interesting because these days as product managers and product in general, People are realizing the importance of talking to users and interviewing users and, and doing research well. And yet, there are not that many great places to learn how to do research well. Case in pointed into it, we had a PhD in market research on our Quick and Marketing team, and so I learned directly from her. You know how to do interviews well. You know what the do's and don'ts of user interviews, qualitative research as well as quantitative research. That was a very fortunate thing to have. But again, speaks to into its culture.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it was a very interesting opportunity. It sounds like you chose wisely in, in picking into it as the place to, you know, have your postdoc in, in product. Yeah, uh, you know, from there you mentioned another interesting company, Box, right? As, as I believe their first VP of product or first head of product, that Ooh, had to inter- be yeah interim consultant. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that had to be an interesting experience. You know, as they made a lot of tough choices, and I, I think chose wisely in most cases. You know, choices like you know, are we going to offer this for free? For how long? How much? Talk to me about that experience. That had to be, you know, yeah, that had to be both challenging and also thrilling.
1: Yeah, no, it was. I mean, the box team is, you know, when I was there, I went to a few of their 21st birthday parties. So they, for those of you not familiar with the story, you know, four friends from high school decided to drop out of college to pursue this startup in the storage and collaboration space. And so that's when I was working with them and it was super exciting fast paced the time from when you know Aaron would have an idea to when it would be designed and launched, you know, it would be like days maximum. And the reality is, you know, at Box, Aaron is their kind of head of product, kind of like Steve Jobs kind of was at Apple. So I, I certainly can't take a bunch of credit for a lot of stuff they did. I was more of an advisor and counselor to him. And and I remember the one thing I did do is I ran their first user testing session because they, you know, because they were in their twenties, they hadn't had a lot of experience they hadn't done user tests, and I remember that being super eye-opening for them because whenever you do your first user tests, you know, you're going to find bugs and things you didn't even know about, right, use cases you didn't even realize. So it was certainly very eye-opening for them, which was great. And on the, on the topic of charging, yeah, I had, um, prior to working at Box, I had worked at you Send It, which is another SaaS collaboration company. And when I joined them post-Series A, I, they were basically a consumer-focused site monetizing via ads, And in raising their Series A, they and their board wanted to pivot to, you know, let's move to SMB and let's, you know, let's focus on kind of a direct monetization use case. So I was very fortunate to be able to design their freemium model and all their paid tiers and which features went into which tiers there. And we had a lot of data because they had millions of users. We had a lot of data on usage so we could basically dial it in. So that was a fun exercise. And so, yeah, I think you're right. Box did another similar job of, of navigating the freemium model well, where the general idea there is, you know, by having a free entry-level product, you can have people come in and kick the tires and see how good your product is and how it meets their needs. But then as people have more advanced needs or the trial expires, basically you start monetizing it. And so that's one of the beauties of SaaS that working on both of those companies is if you have a low churn rate, then you're basically not fighting for a new business every month or every year, like in other businesses where you have to do that. And So it just builds on itself. So it can be a really wonderful business model, especially if you have good product market fit and low churn.
0: So let's jump next into a topic you've presented on in the past, and that being market opportunities. Talk to me about your thoughts on identifying market opportunities.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, market opportunities, the way I think about it is just you're trying to find opportunities to create customer value, right? Customers are getting a certain amount of value from the products they're using today, And you're trying to, you know, scan and find ways to deliver more value, hopefully significantly more value. And so there are a lot of tech companies out there that focus on the technology and the solutions. And, you know, there are numerous stories of companies that had some cool technology that they built and launched. And then people called it like a technology looking for a problem, right? So what I found more successful is when you're going after market opportunities to start with the customer, think about what are the customer needs or benefits or pain points that you think you could address and that if you did address would create a lot of customer value. And so I talk a lot in my talks and books about the idea of problem space versus solution space, where a problem is more focused on what is the customer need and solution is focused more on what's the product that we're actually going to build. What's the solution we're going to build to meet that need. And I think again, too many teams just, just go barreling in a solution space and, you know, talking about designs or building things before they really understand the customer and what the problem is. And, you know, if you do focus on customer needs and benefits, and I have a lot of advice on that in my talks, then basically what comes up is great. How do we prioritize which one of these, all these different needs are going to create more customer value? And so you kind of need a prioritization framework or a way of quantifying, you know, or assessing how much customer value can be created if you go after these different customer needs. And when I was at Intuit, I developed a framework of importance versus satisfaction that works really well for that. And the way that works is for each of the customer needs, you talk about, you just rate the importance of it, right? And you can think about this two ways. One is, imagine you had, you know, millions of users and you could do a formal survey and say, hey, how important is this on a scale of one to 10? And different needs, for a given person, different needs will have different importances, levels of importance. And, you know, across users, the same need will have different levels of importance. And then on the satisfaction front, you simply ask how satisfied are you with how you're getting that need met today, right? Again, you can view it as, a survey going one to 10 or both of these you can use as a thinking tool on your team where you just say, Hey, as a team, do we think this is low, medium, high, you know, and it's just a hypothesis at that point. So when you do that, basically the, the idea is to focus on high importance needs, not low importance needs, because life's too short. You're not going to create a lot of customer value addressing the low importance needs. And when companies you know, launch a product that fails and it turns out that it's because it addressed a low importance need, it's because they didn't realize that ahead of time because they didn't use these techniques that that are covered in my book and in my talk. So I want to focus on high importance needs. Within high importance needs, though, they're the ones that are pretty well satisfied today, right? High importance, high satisfaction. That's basically a competitive market. And, you know, so yes, it's an important need, but customers are pretty happy with how they're getting that need net today. The example I always think of first there is like Google internet search. Now, if I asked you, hey, how important is it to find the information you're looking for online? It's usually pretty important. But if I asked you how satisfied are you with Google, you'd say you're pretty satisfied. It's not like people walk around going, gosh, I can't find anything on Google, right? And you hear people say you need to be 10x better. So in that quadrant of high importance, high satisfaction, you definitely need to be 10x better. The upper left quadrant, which has high importance and low satisfaction, that's where the big opportunities lie, right? Because people are saying this is really important. And I'm not that satisfied with how it's met today. And those will not persist forever because we, you know, we work in competitive and innovative environments where other people are also seeking these market opportunities and trying to pursue them. But if you do this analysis, you can find them and you can address them. The example i like to share for that quadrant is ride sharing, especially here in the Bay Area. Not necessarily, you know, I just was in New York and the taxi system there is great. You can just walk out and get a taxi. But, you know, in, this, in San Francisco, the taxi situation was not that great. So if I just went through the importance and satisfaction and said, hey, you know, I asked 20 people, how important is it to get to your flight on time? How important is it to get to your job interview on time? How important is it to get to, you know, whatever you need to go to on time? It's pretty important. And if conversely I said, well, how satisfied were you with the last, say, five cab rides that you took? We'd probably get low satisfaction because the cabs didn't show up or they showed up late or It was a hassle to pay the person, right? There are a lot of different dimensions. And so we can ask it again at the high level, or we can start breaking it down and saying, how satisfied were you with punctuality, with how clean the cab was, how safe it was, how polite the driver was, all these different aspects. So you can imagine that we would get some low scores on satisfaction there, basically. So so importance versus satisfaction, again, even as a team, if you just use low, medium, high, is a great way to filter the different opportunities you could go after to try to find the ones that are going to create the most value, which makes sense to pursue and explore further.
0: Yeah, and and that's a good lead into talking about, you know, getting that first product out there, what some people call an MVP or maybe a most usable product or sellable product. But (laughs) let's let's chat about how you think about minimum viable products.
1: Sure. The funny thing is you already mentioned two alternative acronyms, right, Uh, usable and sellable. And I think the fact that you have so many variants of the acronyms because people don't like the MVP term just highlights how of contentious and misunderstood it is right anytime you have a big movement like lean startup you're going to have buzzwords and people gonna have a range of interpretations but mvp is like the poster child for the one that people have big debates about you know i've seen an article called the title of the article was a landing page is an mvp and the person went on to explain why it was And then somebody read that article and they did not like it and they totally disagreed. So it made them go and write an article called a landing page is not an MVP. And they had a flame wars in the comments about this, right? So what's funny is I think that's why you see alternative acronyms because people aren't always clear on it. And I think that I understand kind of both sides that you typically see. So the hardcore product people are like, now, how can a landing page be an MVP? You know, I can write, a, I can create an amazing landing page and sell you snake oil, make all kinds of promises, and then you click through and the product doesn't exist or it's not good or it doesn't meet your needs. So a landing page is not a product and the P in MVP stands for product. So how can it be a product, not, a, not an MVP? So that's the one extreme view. The other view is, is a very, is a looser view, which says, well, an MVP is just anything that you can learn from, you know? That's an MVP. An MVP is all about learning. So anything I do, create to generate learning is an MVP. And so I appreciate that point of view too. And I think so. So what I recommend doing, and what I cover in my book and talks, is to get out of that black and white argument. Is to go up one level and call them all MVP experiments or tests. And then you know it's like then of course the landing page people agree that it's an experiment or test. And by calling it an experiment or test, and the hardcore product people are okay with it as well. So that's kind of one thing that I focus on. The reality is there's a wide range of MVPs that you can pursue. Uh, and, you know, one of them will probably better meet your needs for what you're trying to accomplish at any given point in time. And I actually, in my book and in, in my talks, I categorize them. So I think it's important to categorize them between product and, you know, what I call non-product or marketing MVPs. So again, a, a landing page would be on the non-product MVPs. And things like, you know, obviously a live product or a high-fidelity prototype, that would be in the product MVPs. And then I also like to differentiate between qualitative and quantitative because some of them you're getting qualitative information from, other ones you're getting quantitative from. So you end up with a two-by-two of product, marketing, qualitative, quantitative, and all the different MVPs are kind of categorized in there. But at the end of the day, an MVP is just a way to test your hypothesis. And um, what you want to do is think about all the hypotheses you're making across your product and figure out which one has the biggest risk or uncertainty. And then say, okay, what MVP could we come up with or use to help try to reduce that risk or uncertainty? And one of the things I'm really a big fan and proponent of is that you really, really can test a lot before you build anything or write a single line of code. And a lot of kind of builder-centric organizations, they just so quickly go to solution space and code something and to try to test their hypotheses. So even if they agree with testing hypotheses, they go to code or building. When the reality is, you know, with prototyping tools, you can really move much faster and iterate much more quickly, especially since the tools have become so good these days. So in the book, I share a few different examples of that and in my talks as well. So I would just encourage people if you're, if, if hopefully, you know, that clarifies MVP a bit for folks, And then if you're pursuing MVP and you're always doing it by building something, then I would recommend that you, you know, investigate other alternatives and and investigate prototyping tools because it's so easy, you know, basically to just get a clickable prototype in front of someone with doing zero coding. And all of a sudden you realize, Hey, we got these three things right. We got these three things wrong. And guess what? We didn't waste any time coding those three things that we got wrong. Right. So it's a way to move faster and, and validate things before you, invest in building.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's great. If you can get data and experimental data faster and use that to inform your product direction, that has to be awesome. let lets you uh, make better use of scarce engineering resources, right? Yes,
1: exactly, exactly.
0: So one thing I really like that you talk about in a lot of your talks is this vertical slice, right? When you're thinking about, you know, minimum viable product yes. or... You know, having features that delight along with, you know, the competitive features you need to compete. Talk to me a little bit about your approach there, why that's important. Definitely, yeah. So,
1: you know, in my talks and books, I, I try to point out common mistakes that product teams make. When it comes to MVP, there's two common mistakes. One is the whole goal of MVP is to prevent you from overscoping your product before you realize whether you're heading in the right direction or not. Despite that, people still overscope their MVP. It's super easy to say, well, someone might need that. Let's put that in the MVP. Let's put that in the MVP, right? So it's a slippery slope. The second biggest mistake I see people make is, is what you're referring to from the vertical slice is they misuse MVP as a way you know, to, to launch something that there's no way it can really succeed. So so they know that we can't build all the functionality. So that's good. But they use MVP as an excuse to not worry about quality. And it's like, oh, yeah, it has a bunch of bugs, but it's just an MVP or usability or UX design. Yeah, we know it's, you know, the UI is not that good, but we can fix that later. It's just an MVP. So they use MVP as an excuse. And, and a nice framework to kind of think about this was created uh, by Aaron Walter of MailChimp. So he was the head of UX design at MailChimp. And I remember to this day, the first time I used MailChimp, you know, I had used a few other email campaign programs, software before, applications before. And it was just like head and shoulders, easy to use and intuitive. So I'm not surprised that he wrote this book, Designing for Emotion, and that, and that he talked about this. But he basically, and I modified his framework slightly, but he has a pyramid that starts out with functional, the next layer up is reliable, the next layer up is usable, and the next layer up is delightful. And the idea is, it, it's actually a very powerful framework to just assess, hey, where are we with our product? I, I use that a lot with my clients to say, hey, where do we think we're doing well? Where do we think we, we, we have the biggest gaps? And um, it's funny, one, one of my clients, they didn't, they got, the idea is, as you know, from the graphic, there's two side by side, and it shows how you slice the pyramid for your MVP. They didn't want to write out all four words in the second pyramid. So they just wrote D-U-R-F for delight, usability, uh, reliability, functionality. And so we coined it the DERF model, which is a lot shorter name. So the DERF pyramid is a great way to say, okay, uh, how are we, you know, how are we doing on our product? Or if you're trying to do an MVP, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? And so I have this diagram where, you know, I say this is not, you don't want to do an MVP this way, where all they do is they bite off a slice of the functionality layer of the pyramid. So obviously it's, the good thing is they only bought off a slice. They didn't build all the functionality. But again, they used MVP as an excuse to ignore usability, you know, reliability and delight. Instead, as you said, you want to do a vertical slice. So it's true that you want to only build a subset of the functionality. But for the subset of functionality that you do, create for your MVP, you want it to be reliable enough. You know It's not going to be perfect. I'm not saying it should be bug-free and have an amazing UI, but it should be reliable enough, usable enough, delightful enough so that people can get a sense of your product. Because if you go and test the former kind of MVPs that, that, only have, that completely ignored reliability and usability, they never test well. Right? They just don't test well because it doesn't matter if you have some amazing functionality, if people can't find it or figure out how to use it or it doesn't work the right way, you're not going to get credit as far as creating customer value goes. And then, you know, teams that do that, they go, oh, geez, this tested so poorly. See, this whole MVP approach was wrong. Let's go back to waterfall and the way we used to do things, right? So people misuse that, and then they misuse the results that they get as an excuse to abandon those kind of approaches. So
0: DERF it is, right? DERF. <laughs> so talk to me about why PM should approach it that way. I mean, both from a DERF perspective, and that just rolls right off the tongue, it but does. also from your approach uh, you know, on identifying market opportunities.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, basically, you know, the number one reason is you'll get to a better solution much more quickly. Right. And I, you know, again, I work with a lot of I've worked with a lot of different organizations in my nine years of consulting to date, and it's like a bell curve as far as how uh, natural it is for people to adopt these new technology, new approaches and and philosophies. But I see some people still holding on to the idea of, Hey, we're going to write the perfect PRD. We're going to write the perfect spec. We're going to get everything right. You know? And the bottom line is just, there's just no way you're going to get your initial version hundred percent right. It's just, it's just folly to even try. And the metaphor that I think of is like a bullseye, like an archery bullseye. Like they keep thinking that, Hey, you know, if we just keep spending more and more time, we're going to get closer and closer to that middle of the bullseye. And it's almost, it's just like it's the wrong mental model. You know, there's actually a fair number of product teams that quote Donald Rumsfeld. In his talk, Donald said, there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we know we know, there are things that we know we don't know, but there are things that we don't yet know that we don't know, right? And that's the bottom line. Like That makes the whole bullseye analogy just go away. Like There's no way you don't, you don't know what you don't know. So you can spend way too much time prematurely optimizing things. Now, look, I think you need to still be rigorous to a certain extent. You obviously want to move fast, be rigorous enough, and not just throw spaghetti against the wall. But the bottom line is you don't know what you don't know yet. And so what you want to do is get in front of customers with a high enough fidelity prototype as soon as you can. And that prototype will basically you know, embody all the hypotheses that you're making. And what it reminds me of, is, since I used to work on submarines, when a submarine like, fires a torpedo, they don't need to get the direction exactly right to like, the you know, second decimal point. The way it works is you kind of shoot it in the, you know, in the general direction of the target, and then the torpedo turns on its homing, and it kind of you know, fine-tunes its course. That's how I view kind of iterating with customer research. You want to get a prototype and get out there and talk to customers in the general area that you're trying to pursue – and then by, if you do a good job conducting their interviews and you learn and you iterate, it, they will guide you into where you're going to create the most product market fit, basically, right? So, so don't obsess too much about premature optimization before you get in front of customers. That's, that's kind of the main lesson. But again, going back to why it's valuable is, as you said, those engineering resources are very valuable. They tend to be the, the scarcest resource. And it just goes back to lean principles of like, let's not waste their time. Let's not have them building stuff that we don't have a high degree of confidence is going to create customer value. Instead, let's go, you know, mitigate the biggest risks and uncertainty to make sure that to a certain degree, you're never going to be perfectly sure, but that, hey, before we go and ask them to build this, because conversely, if they build the wrong thing, now you're starting to incur tech debt, right? And if, you know, three months later, you're like, oh, we realize we completely are going about this the wrong way. It should work this way. It's like, well, we built the database this way, and we built the object model this way. We have existing APIs. Can't we just reuse those? You know, it's human nature to not want to throw away the work. And the reality is you will start building in technical coupling and constraints from day one. So it's just better to validate without coding as much as you can uh, before you start building.
0: So those, those are great lessons. I mean, you have some awesome examples. Is, is this what drove you to write the Lean Product Playbook?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I'm really passionate about sharing best practices on how to build great products. You know, I, you know, when I became a product manager, I wanted to learn how to do it really well. And I was fortunate to work it into it, which taught me a lot of great things. There just weren't a lot of resources out there, to be honest, right? I joke with my business classmates, Hey, remember that PM class we took at Stanford? Because there wasn't one, right? It's not like there's a lot of PM classes you can take and things like that. Right? And even back then, not even that many books or resources, right? So I think it's great to share best practices and have a dialogue and just elevate how everyone's doing this. I basically got into speaking. You know, someone asked me to give a talk in 2007. I really enjoyed it. So I really like talking with groups, you know, Of people that are building products, whether it's public settings or private within a company. And basically over time in 2007, you know, I would get questions. What about this? What about this? You know, how do you interview the users with this? What about this? And so I would just add my content and add more and more slides and hear more and more questions, you know, so uh, between consulting and speaking and working my own products, develop all these kind of frameworks and best practices. And basically the book gave me the opportunity to refine and extend that even more so for example, the product market fit pyramid, which is the key framework in the book, there were earlier kind of rough prototype versions of that framework, but they, they weren't yet in that form. So it was really nice to be able to sit down and write on and extend certain things and create new frameworks. There are a lot of, you know, I think, you know, someone jokingly said, or half jokingly said, product management is all about frameworks, you know, like thinking how to think about things. And then I joke, yeah, you just need a framework to to figure out which framework to use in which situation. But um, <laughs> But they are powerful, right? Mental models. And so, my book has over 50, you know, figures and tables in it. A lot of them like the DERF pyramid or like the iceberg for UX design. These metaphors that that really kind of let people quickly get up to speed on whatever topic it is and and keep it in their mind. Uh, And so, basically, I just like sharing best practices. That's also why I started, you know, four years ago, I started a monthly speaker series meetup here in the Bay Area called Lean Product, where I also bring in top speakers. Um, Because I just think, you know, we just can't have enough good resources to to help people. If you think about it, it's still also a big spread, you know. There are all these best practices in books and talks. But then you go out there and there are so many companies that are still not doing it that way, you know. So there's still a big gap to be closed in my mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're trying to, I mean… Part of this podcast is trying to close that resource gap a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. The books you've written, the slideshows you have online are awesome. There's lots of great resources people can leverage. And then they need the skills, right? So yes. what, what do you think are the big, important skills for PMs to be successful?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think about this a lot, and, and partly because when I was at Intuit, I interviewed tons of PM candidates for my clients, I've interviewed lots of PM candidates, you know, so I've interviewed a lot of PMs and reflected on what skills they need to succeed. So some obvious ones are like, they need to be customer centric, right? The PM needs to be the most customer centric person in the building and be the champion of the customer. So that kind of goes without saying. The other thing that's pretty obvious is they need to have good communication skills. You are in a central position, interacting with other functions, you know, kind of like a UN translator, you know, when the devs say this and you need to explain it to the business stakeholders, you have to translate that. So you need to be able to empathize with devs, designers, you know, stakeholders, put yourself in their shoes. I think good PMs are able to get out of their own shoes and and truly empathize with other people. But beyond that, the things that I think are less obvious, the things I really actually, what I think are the most important, one is what I've coined dynamic range. And let me explain that. This basically has to do with the kind of the forest versus the trees. You know, some people are really, really good at minute details. Other people are really good at like the 30,000 foot view of the big picture of what's going on. And so dynamic range is thinking about where are you most comfortable and strongest along that dimension, right? Some people are limited to the top high level things. Some people are limited to the details I think good PMs are able to span a wide range and connect the big picture with the details, right? So they can listen to, you know, their GM, their CEO, the executive team as to why, well, here's what we're trying to accomplish as a company, as a business unit. And then they can turn around and translate that down into what does that mean for this particular feature team? What does that mean for this particular PM or this particular engineer, you know? So that's what I call dynamic range. And, and, and I was fortunate into it to study Myers-Briggs. And it kind of ties, for those of you that are familiar with it or interested, there's one particular dimension of Myers-Briggs, intuiting versus sensing, that this ties into, basically. And the other thing is, basically, it helps connect the details of what people are doing. There's no way the CEO or team can be there in all those meetings, right? And so, if team members understand why, you know, why we're doing what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish, then they can independently make decisions and, and you have much better alignment. So, I think I um, am especially sensitive to this because I was fortunate to work in my career at two organizations that were good at this, what's called shared vision, like everybody understanding, you know, what's the overall mission, the high-level thing we're trying to accomplish, and then what's called line of sight, which is like, how do my actions or what I need to do to contribute to that? So, where I worked at, you know, designing submarines in the Navy, entered into it, we're both really good at that. That's one. And then the second, I think, really critical skill is prioritization, Right there are so many ideas coming at you. Um, You have ideas, your devs have ideas, executives have ideas, customers have ideas, competitors have ideas, right? So there's, there's way more ideas than we can possibly execute against. And some are obviously better than others. And so you have to prioritize because you have limited resources. So I think first and foremost, being able to make calls, right? Some people just get kind of frozen, like deer frozen headlight when they've got a list of 30 things and they have to prioritize it. They just can't make those tough calls. So step one is being able to make those calls. But the advanced version of that is actually being able to explain the rationale behind why you prioritize the way you did. It's it's not enough just to say, yep, I put them in high, medium, low order. By the way, I like to use the term rigorous prioritization. You know, early in my career, I saw MRDs and PRDs that would have like 10 high features and 15 medium features and 20 low features, you know, and as a product team, you're like, okay, great. There's 10 highs, which one should we do first? Right? So you're kind of punting on the question. So I'm a big fan of rank order prioritization Where yeah, it's fine to do high, medium, low, but within the highs, rank order them one through 10. So we know exactly which one should be done first. We can always change it later. It's not trying to lock it in stone, but that's what I mean by rigorous prioritization. But again, what's most important is you can explain to somebody, well, here's why I made this one. Number three, and why I made this one number two, right? And I think that, you know, you basically need to have the rationale and mental models to be able to explain that to people. And then the final point is, again, it's important to be rigorous, but you also have to be flexible, right? So at any point in time, I like to have the rank order priorities, but then as we get new information, we need to be able to change it, right? We're going to add something in. Oh, geez, this thing just came in from my competitor or something, and we need to make that number three now, right? So you can't be locked in stone and say, no, no, we made our list of top 10. You know, you can't change it. So you always want to have that clear rank order list, but be flexible and mindful when you get new information that it should change. So again, dynamic range and prioritization I think are two of the most critical skills for product managers.
0: So, I noticed you didn't really mention any technical skills. No. Do you, do you think product managers need to, you know, especially in software need to be, I mean, we're both computer engineers, right? Is that, is it necessary?
1: Yeah. Well, that's the funny thing is there's a debate out there, right? And there are definitely companies that have a school of thought that, Hey, if you're not a CS major, double E major, we don't even want to talk to you and you won't even get the job interview. Right. I think that there are way too many companies doing that in situations where it, it doesn't really apply or add a lot of value. Now, I do think, obviously, if we're working on a very technical product, you need to, then that's different, right? Or if you're marketing to developers or building products for developers, perhaps that would help you have more customer empathy. But I don't think, I personally am not of the school that, you know, all product managers should be able to code. What I will say, though, my general advice to product managers is, you know, you live in a value creation chain, right? Like, we live You know, downstream of us in the fact, if you think about product, making products as a factory, right? Upstream of us is like execs and customers and marketing and things like that. We take all the input from them and we figure out, you know, what what the product roadmap and definition should be. And then downstream of us, we have UX designers, visual designers, developers, QA. So I'm always a big fan of learning about getting really knowledgeable about the adjacent people that you work with. So UX design would be great to learn. And development, not necessarily that you're going to be the world's best Python coder. I think what's valuable is is to have enough technical knowledge to accomplish a few things. One is that you can have credibility with the tech team. If you go in there and they say, oh, that's a JavaScript error, and you have no idea what they're talking about, then you're not going to be viewed as credible or knowledgeable, right? And that's kind of not what you want because nobody reports to us as product managers. And so it's all done by, it's the whole influencing without authority, A key part of how you influence is by being perceived as knowledgeable, and they don't expect you to know more about JavaScript than they do, but, you know, knowing the difference between client-side things and server-side things and this is a database change versus this is a UI change is super helpful. And so I actually recommend people start, like, just by learning, like, HTML. I mean, HTML is not hardcore coding. It's kind of very lightweight, but it'll give you a big appreciation. Another thing is just, hey, get your own website up and running, you know, even if it's WordPress, just get some lightweight website because it'll make you appreciate, oh, you know, things like HTML and CSS. So, I don't think you need to go super deep, like going investing, you know, you don't need a degree, you know, coding bootcamp. you know, maybe if you're really passionate about it, but I would just say pick up some lightweight stuff. One of the other areas is actually SQL, right, or database languages. And this ties into another skill that people are increasingly wanting PMs to have, which is you know, analytics or statistics, or as machine learning and AI get become more and more popular, people want PMs ideally have that expertise. And so SQL is a very specific uh, language where you don't have to learn all these other languages. You just learn SQL, and then all of a sudden you can get data that you need out of databases, which is very helpful as a product manager, you know, to look at analytics and things like that. So, so anyway, back to what you said. I don't think you absolutely need it. There are certain, obviously, technical jobs, technical products where you do but I think far too many companies over-index it. And I think they're just being lazy and using it as shorthand. It's like, hey, if they're a CS major, well, then of course you're going to be able to work well with developers. And there's one other aspect too, which is, you know, you, you want to avoid situations where you go in and make a request to developers and what you're asking for is going to take like a year, right? So being somewhat technical enough to know that, hey, the scope of what I'm asking for I think is like about a week or it's about a month or it's about six months so that you're not making these asks that kind of are out of line, And again, these companies presume that if you have a CS degree that you're going to be an expert at all that stuff, which also isn't true, right? You you could have a CS degree and not work well with developers. Sometimes you get ex-developers who become PMs and they still try to be developers and tell the developers how to code stuff. That obviously doesn't work well. So I think what matters the most is the things we talked about, customer empathy, communication skills, prioritization, and being the expert on the customer and the market in your company. And that's when you get to that point, then that's the knowledge. That's the unique value add you bring to the team. To, to kind of, you know, help contribute to the overall customer value that's being created.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I think you've you've touched on a trend I see too, which is picking up adjacent skills, whether it's UX design or UX research or, you know, like you talked about analytics, and, you know, having PMs that can both capture data, understand data and know how to act on data, I assume is a is a big trend I've seen. What other trends do you see in product management?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I've always, so... I mentioned how at business school I learned about product management is what I wanted to do, so I got into product management, into it. Very soon I realized, oh, my gosh, there's this whole field like of UX design that's really, really important because I can write these great product definitions in words, and then we can kind of fall short on the UX design. Or the, Conversely, there's opportunities to create great UXs here. And so I went out of my way to like, go and learn it. I took classes in it. I read books on it. I you know, partnered with talented designers to suck as much – As I could out of the brain and learn about it. Not because I wanted to become the world's best designer, but for a couple reasons. One, so that I could evaluate designs better, right? When a designer would come to me with a design, I could critique it. And I think that's kind of the levels you go through. One is kind of ignorance, you can't really evaluate it too well. And then second is I can critique it. I can't create a design myself, but I can critique it and point out things that I don't think are going to work well. And then eventual mastery is hey, I can create some stuff myself. And again, Maybe it's lightweight and you're never going to be as good as a designer, but I think in general learning about the adjacent you know the skills building skills that the adjacent functions have, whether it's UX design or marketing or UX research or dev or analytics, just helps you have a better dialogue and conversation with them, more empathy for how they think about things and more understanding of what's possible and how much it's going to take so out of all those, I think UX design is the one that PM should most readily embrace. I, I work with a lot of startups. And in my book and talks, I talk about the design gap that exists. What that means is, yeah, okay, you have engineers and you have PMs, but there's really no designer. And a lot of startups have this. A lot of big company teams have this. They may have designers, but your particular team is understaffed or doesn't get the resources. And the reality is when it comes to design, there's two very different types of designers. There's interaction designers who focus on, you know, information architecture, interaction design. They might be doing more wireframing. And then visual designers who focus more on fonts, colors, you know, images, things like that. And so many places have a design gap. And, you know, good PMs fill the voids that are around them, whether it's customer support or QA or marketing. You know, again, we're in this middle position and they're often unstaffed or understaffed or underskilled functions adjacent to us. And to kind of complete the value chain, good PMs will fill in as they can, as needed uh, there, And so I definitely in startups, it's very common that if the PM isn't creating wireframes or design, nobody in the company is. And so you go from having like PRDs or, you know, Jira tickets or wiki pages and words to the poor developers got to figure out what the heck to code, what UI to code from that. It's not their fault, right? No one's providing the UI guidance. So if you just suddenly add to that equation a PM who can create basic wireframes in say Balsamic. Now you've gone a long way towards working through some of the UX design issues that are going to be there, right? It may not end up looking super pretty with the best colors and the best fonts, but at least by working through wireframes, you'll work through uh, usability issues and navigation issues and things like that. So when I interview PMs for startups, I will ask, hey, you know, do you wireframe or not? And if they say no, then it's pretty strong negative mark against them for startups, One, because they haven't done it on their own, but two, also because it shows to me a lack of intellectual curiosity, again, about learning about adjacent fields. Like, you know, maybe if you say, well, yeah, I've played around with Balsamic, I'm not the best at it. That's much better than saying, no, I never tried. You know what I mean? So anyway, I think UX design. And the other one is UX research. Again, it's really exciting to see in the last several years, the importance of talking to users going up But then more and more people, they want to talk to users, but they feel like they're intimidated or they don't know how, right? And they're like, oh, so there's two extremes. One is people saying, being overconfident and saying, yeah, I can talk to users and not doing it well because they don't know best practices and do's and don'ts. The other extreme is, oh, no, we need a professional UX researcher. I can't possibly interview a user. But what I would say is it's not rocket science. It's like riding a bicycle. You just get better at it the more you do it. And it's honestly one of the most learnable skills you know, UX design, you've got to learn some new tool like balsamic or sketch. There's a lot going on that you have to learn. UX research is probably the easiest thing to get better at quickly just by doing it and by taking notes and reflecting on it after the fact. And a lot of it comes down to just how you ask the questions. That's, it literally comes down to not leading the, the witness, so to speak, being objective and not trying to, you know, guide them towards the answers that you want. And asking open-ended versus closed-end questions. And I talk about that in my talks and books. But I would just encourage people, if, you're, if you haven't done user research or you're feeling you know, intimidated by it and you want to get better, there's definitely easy ways to do that.
0: Yeah, just jump in and get started, right? Mm-hmm. Just like riding a bike. So yep. we've covered a lot today. What specific advice would you give to young and aspiring PMs out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, in addition to what we've covered today, I I'm mean, just, you know, reflecting on product management as a career, it's largely experiential learning, I think. There aren't that many classes out there. Even then, you kind of need to live through it, and it's kind of like on-the-job training. So, you basically learn a lot from others. At your company, what that means is that your manager can really teach you a lot or not, basically, and I was very fortunate into it. I was kind of walked into a product machine, and so I learned from everybody, but I especially learned from my managers and peers, Right. So, you know, I would say if, you know, it's kind of harsh, but if you're not getting the kind of PM learning and guidance that you need or want from your manager, perhaps seek out other sources, other mentors, if they're not even your direct manager. And if those don't exist, maybe, and you're really like, man, I really want to get my PM skills improved. Maybe you need to go to a different team with a different manager, but you can also learn from good designers that you work with and good developers that you work with, right? So learning from other people is key. There never are tons of books on PM, but there are more books than there used to be. Meetups are a great way to learn from other people too. You know, um, there are more and more product events, conferences, meetups, videos online. At my meetup, each month we bring in top speakers. We always record it for people that can't go to that. And then blog posts and podcasts like this one. So that's the other thing. Again, when I interview PMs, I always, I mean, one of the questions I'll ask is I'll be like, how did you learn PM?" And some people have a very weak answer. It's like, I don't know, I just started doing it. And other people are like, well, I learned from this manager and I, I read these books and I, I, I went to these events and I, you know, watch these videos and I read these blogs. It just shows me that, again, that they've got the intellectual curiosity to try to improve their craft. So those are some of the ways that you, you can go about trying to grow your PM skills and career.
0: Awesome. So... You know, the important question I always ask people, and I ask this on interviews too, it's, it's always interesting to hear what people have to say, you know, which direction they take this, but uh, three words to describe yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: saw that. It's a funny question. Uh, it's tough, but I do like the uh, succinctness of it. So I basically came out with promoting PM excellence, because if you kind of see the common thread through all the stuff that I've talked about today, it's, that's kind of what I enjoy doing is promoting PM excellence.
0: I think that's, that's a great three words. I, I remember uh, being at dinner with Astro Teller at a place soba in Pittsburgh way, way back when. this is probably 15, 20 years now, and now he's uh, running whatever, you know, all the major, cool, innovative projects over at Google. I forget what his actual title is,, you know, and having, having the same discussion where everyone at the table answered that. It, it, was, it was interesting. So as we're, as we're wrapping up here now, any, anything else you'd like listeners to know about? No, I mean, it's been a pleasure talking with
1: you guys just since it's a podcast, just giving people some pointers online, you know, as far as my book, The Lean Product Playbook, if, if some of the ideas I've discussed sound interesting and you want to learn more, just want to let people know that in addition to hard cover, it's also ebook and audiobook. book. I know I love books these days. The only way I'm able to consume as much is through audiobooks. In addition to the English version, there's Chinese and Turkish versions. If people prefer those languages and Polish and Thai are coming out soon as well. On the meetup, I mentioned a couple times, as I said, I do run a monthly speaker series in Mountain View. It's actually at Intuit headquarters in Mountain View. It's called the Lean Product and Lean UX Meetup. I started it four years ago, again, to share best practices. We've grown to over 6,000 people now. I just had Marty Kagan there uh, Thursday night, which was great. It's free to join. And if you want to learn more, you can go to meetup.com slash lean hyphen product and learn more. On the consulting front, if anyone's interested in learning more about coaching or training, you can check out my website, dan-olson.com. You can contact me there. And if any of you have read, listeners out there, have read the book and have any feedback on it, please reach out to me. It's always great to hear from readers. And as far as other resources, I give a lot of talks. I make it a point to post the videos and slides on my website, again, dan-olson.com, if you want to check those out. A lot of them, you know, having a slide to go along with the audio helps a lot as far as explaining the framework. And if you just go to danolson.com, it also has pointers to the meetup and book and other info. So. Those are some of the uh, URLs I'd share with folks. And uh, it's been a real pleasure
0: talking to you about product management today, Here, Awesome. This has been great. Greatly enjoyed it. Thanks again, Dan.
1: Thank you. Bye.